Hello and welcome to the Recovering from Religion podcast. Our mission here is to offer hope, healing, and support to those struggling with issues of doubt and non-belief. What follows is the audio from selected videos posted on Recovering from Religion's YouTube channel. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. So, without further ado, allow me, it is my great, great pleasure to introduce to you Candace Gorham. She is a licensed professional mental health counselor. She's formerly an ordained minister turned atheist humanist activist. She's a researcher and a writer on issues related to race and religion. She's also a member of the Black Humanist Society Advisory Board, the Secular Therapist Project, and the Clergy Project. Candace is also the author of the Ebony Exodus Project, Why Some Black Women Are Walking Out of Religion and Others to, others Should Too, and she's got a brand new book coming out that I can't wait for her to tell us about. Candice, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be back again. Oh, that, yeah. And so today, um, the title of the RFRX is the same as your book. Uh, isn't that right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And um, it's uh, your book is called On Death, Dying, and Disbelief. And disbelief. And what um, kind of prompted you to kind of write this book? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about it some more in the talk. Oh. the gist of it, the quick to sort of quickly answer your question is that I dealt with a significant loss of my own, and I needed somewhere to channel that energy, and so I wrote a book. Ah. I'm, I'm really Quick excited and dirty about it. answer. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you for being here, Candice, because this topic affects us all in some way. So we really appreciate what you're going to share with us today. Thank you for coming along. Thank you. So um, the, the time is yours and uh, let us know what you need. All righty. So you want me to just go? Okay, oh, I so can, I'm, I'm going gonna... to go ahead and end the poll too. And if oh, you okay. at any time want us to bring that up, let me know. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. I was just looking at the poll again myself. Yeah, just looking at the poll briefly, I'm noticing, you know, the majority of people have dealt with some kind of significant loss. But I also find it interesting that, you know, as much, you know, one in five, we got 10, I mean, 20% here have not dealt with any kind of significant loss. And I, and I have a special part of the book to address that as well. Um, and for people who have not had significant losses and um do you want me to share the the poll results with the folks sure sure yeah you could just share show them i'm just looking at them myself um you know the the fact that oh go ahead i'm sorry the the first question is have you dealt with a significant loss we had 83 percent said yes and um the second question are you aware of any grief resources for non-believers and most of the people, 70% said uh, no, that they haven't. And I'm actually uh, part of that 70%. Uh, and then the third uh, question, uh, what do you think is the most important thing to focus on when grieving? Uh, and the, like what Kansas has said, the, uh, two-thirds of the folks said mental health is the most important. So I apologize for uh, interrupting you. Oh, no, it's okay. Thank you for reading them out like that. Um, but, you know, I the fact that we've got 70% of the um, of you all who have don't aren't aware of any resources for non-believers regarding grief 
again, that's why I wrote the book. Um, you know, my own grieving process, I, there was nothing for me. There was nowhere for me to go. I didn't have any materials. And so I thought, you know, somebody's got to start the resource building process. So I, that's where I went. So I'm going to go ahead and share the screen and get going with the actual talk. Um, so again, like I said, I'm really happy to be here again. Um, this is the cover of my book, which is um, uh -oh, something popped up and now it's in the way and I can't move it. Sorry. Okay. Um, so that's the cover of the book itself. And the book is not out yet. It's due to be out. It was supposed to be out by now. Um, but I've been informed that there we have a paper shortage in this country, apparently. So now Amazon's release date on it is October 21st, I think. And I'm not quite sure what Barnes and Nobles and, and um, Borders have, but I, I think it's about the same late October. But they are available for pre-order. The book is available for pre-order on all of those sites. Um, so we... Uh, okay, so um, about me, um, Eric's touched on it, you know, my religious backgrounds and my experiences. Um, I was raised a Jehovah's Witness. My dad was the Jehovah's Witness and um, we did that for, until um, I was about nine years old or so when my parents split up, my mom wasn't really feeling Jehovah's Witnesses anyway. So she didn't make us go after they separated and divorced. Um, then when I got into middle school, I started going to what we called the family church, you know, that was where my dad grew up and all of my aunts and uncles and cousins and stuff still go there. And it was United Methodist Church. And I got involved in, um, I was confirmed in the Methodist Church. I got involved in, you know, the children's choir and all of that, did all that stuff there. And, um, and then when I, when I was 18, my sister married a minister a pastor and I got involved in his church and his was more of the it was non-denominational but it was definitely more of a Pentecostal evangelical holiness blah 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 vibe it was you know we got involved in um, praying and fa I mean praying and fasting for you know 10 12 days at a time casting out demons speaking in tongues we did all that in that particular church um, and so that's sort of my religious background and, you know, coming, when I started questioning and, and going through things, um, uh, questioning my beliefs, I was going through a lot of issues in my life at that time. And so I was thinking not necessarily, I wasn't angry at God. I wasn't angry at religion or anything. I was worried about myself. I felt like I must be doing something wrong. You know, I'm praying and I'm fasting. I'm believing God's word and all this, but some, but my life is still falling apart. What am I doing wrong? And so that's how I started studying more and opening myself up to sort of new ways of interpreting the Bible and, you know, just considering stuff that I had never considered before. And I basically just studied my myself right on out of religion um, so it wasn't an emotional process it wasn't a you know I'm angry at God so here let me throw the Bible out the window it was none of that it was just pure and simple um, me um, you know studying myself out of religion and then um, you know Eric mentioned all those other things that I'm that I participate in so why did I write this book? So in 2019, my um, high school sweetheart died after, um, from, after being in a car accident. 
And he and I were, you know, like I said, high school sweethearts. And, you know, I went off to college and we both married and had kids. And um, lucky for me, we both also got divorced at the same time. And so I w- we were able to reconnect. And um, we, and I know that sounds bad, right? Like lucky for my divorce. But, you know, uh, people who have been divorced understand that the majority of us feel like we made a good decision. <laughs> and so um, anyway, so after he, he died and um, around the one year mark of his um after dying the grief for me came back really intensely um it was i mean it took probably six months or so after he died the first in 2019 for me to even feel like the idea of getting back to my normal self was possible um and i you know i could look at a picture of him and smile for example without crying um, and then, like I said, around when that one year mark started coming back, um, the, all of the grief just came back and I felt like, I just, uh, I cannot do this again. Um, you know, it was a horrible year one. I'm not interested in going into year two with repeating what I had gone through in terms of my grieving process. And I thought, you know, what can I do? Um, I was, I also had two friends who were grieving the loss of um, significant people in their lives that year. And then I also just think about, you know, when I go to conferences and things, because I'm a licensed counselor, I've had many people over the years come up to me and ask me for, um, you know, advice about dealing with death and, or, you know, whatever, this grief mourning process. And so, like I said, I'm thinking I'm sitting here and I'm struggling and I can't get out of the bed. And I think, you know, start just thinking about what are the things that I know as a professional, you know, that that help with grief. Like, you know, I need to be doing some of these things. And so that's how I started writing down my thoughts. I started journaling. I started um, doing research on various topics and, you know, and I thought I in his honor, in honor of, of my high school sweetheart, I did, a, um, you know, wrote the book. That's how we got to where we are. So the book is, um, it's actually pretty short, short. It's only about like maybe 145 pages or something. It's very easy to read. It's very straightforward. Part of the reason that I did that is because, um, that I kept it short and that I kept it to the point and, and easy to read is because I'm, I was thinking about my own grieving process and, you know, I wouldn't have been able to sit down and read a complicated 300 page self-help workbook, blah, 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 blah. You know, like I couldn't have handled all of that myself. So I, so I thought, let me just get straight to the point. So the book is 10 tips for grieving non-believers, non-theists, atheists, agnostics, whatever word you want to use there. Um, So tip number one is, yes, you can grieve without there being a deeper supernatural meaning. Tip two is be patient with your spiritual loved ones. Tip three says, take care of your physical self. Take care of you. Tip four uh, four says, attend to your psychological and emotional needs. And that, um, you know, like what we were saying from the poll, the majority of people believe that mental health is a big, is one of the main things to pay attention to during your grieving process. Um, five, there is no time limit on grief. So be patient with yourself. Um, that was something that I was going back through, you know, coming back around on that year one, I was feeling 
impatient with myself. Like I was feeling angry at myself for going through, you know, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, like backsliding. <laughs> Y'all know that word? Anybody know that word backsliding? So, you know, um, I felt like I was not being very patient with myself. Um, tip six is reconnect with nature. Seven, postpone major decisions. Eight, do something in their honor, which of course I wrote a book. Um, nine says cry, cry, and then cry some more. You know, a lot of people try to with you know restrain themselves from crying, but I talk in the book some about the research that goes behind the benefits of crying. And then 10 says caring for others who are grieving. And that's that tip. That's that would speak to that 20% of you who maybe have never dealt with a significant loss. Um, or maybe, you know, those of you who have, but you're not now, you know, and you're trying to figure out how can I support my friend or family or loved one who is dealing with a major loss? How can I support them? And so tip 10 speaks directly to those people who are just trying to be supports. So what I'm going to do is um, talk to you a little bit about, I'm going to kind of give you some highlights from the book. Um, I spent some time talking about the five stages of grief. Um, you probably have heard of those before. They're denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. But one, there's a lot of misconceptions about the stages of grief and a lot of people, um, you know, for example, believe you're supposed to go in a nice orderly fashion. Um, you know, it would, you go through each of these stages and then acceptance means that you're okay with every, you're, you're back to yourself, you're okay, you've accepted the loss, you're good to go. Well, Kubler-Ross wrote that book and that model initially in 1969, and she was speaking actually towards terminally, to terminally ill patients and their families and um, the medical professionals who support them. And so the, the five stages of grief actually was not initially developed for those of us who are surviving a loss, it's for people who are anticipating the loss. And so, you know, obviously since 1969, you know, a lot of people, even in the mental health field, you know, found those um, stages in that way of conceptualizing their grief to be a helpful thing. But Kubler-Ross came back in the 2000s, I think it was, and she wrote another book called On Grief and Grieving um, had, that had to do with this and because she felt like that her, what she had been said had what she said had been misunderstood for so long that she wanted to, you know, revisit the, the five stages. And so some of the main things that she pointed out is that it doesn't go in order. It is a messy, messy, messy process. And, you know, I always think about, you know, like, for example, like I said, when the year came back around, I was feeling angry at myself. Um, I remember there was a one situation, for example, where I was, processing and I was uh, I, I'm, I don't know exactly what I was doing but I know I was in my room and I felt super super sad and I was crying and then I was like <sighs> you know I kind of like pulled myself together and I was like oh no I'm in you know I've dealt with this before and then I got like angry at myself and then I just fell out laughing at myself because I was like did I, I literally just flip through like five of these stages and within a couple of minutes you know and so there, that is something to know about this, um, the stages is that it's, it's not orderly. It's not easy to deal with. It is messy. And acceptance is not an end goal. Acceptance, just like the other stages, is a process that you go through. 
And the goal is that you learn to incorporate that person into your life in a new way. I'm never, ever going to be okay um, about, about my high school sweetheart's death. Never. But, you know, here over two years in, you know, I feel like I've kind of incorporated his memory and his presence or lack thereof, you know, in a different, in a diff- into my life in a different way. Um, and of course, part of it is what I'm doing right now. You know, I wrote the book and I'm giving talks and, you know, what I learned from his loss is, you know, helpful to other people. And so acceptance is really just about learning to incorporate that person and their memory in your life in a different way. Anybody? I mean, now I was, I've been to some black funerals where I was really struggling. So I had to take a picture of myself to show you all what it's like at a black funeral. If you've never been to one, you are not, you might, you are actually kind of missing. It's an experience, but you will be hungry. Like make sure somebody got a peppermint, something to keep your blood sugar from dropping. But I've been to some, some pretty horrible um, funerals as well. And one of you know, something that I've seen a lot and heard a lot is, you know, um, you know, oh, you know, God's got another angel today or, you know, God um, intentionally took this person from us for whatever reason or, yeah, just all kind of stuff. And so going to a funeral can be pretty frustrating, I think, for non-believers as well as, um, I mean, for non-believers specifically for some of those things. And so one of the, um, like I said, that, that, tip where I say, you know, be patient with your spiritual loved ones, that has to do with the fact that, um, uh, let's see, I don't think I'm going to talk about that one specifically. Let me go here and then I'll, I'll talk some more. Let me stay structured. <laughs> tip one is that you can, yes, you can grieve without there being a deeper supernatural meaning, right? Um, I think a lot of people when they're grieving, they have these experiences that seem like something supernatural, right? Maybe they feel like they're hearing voices, hearing movement about the house. Um, Maybe they feel like they see them. Um, You know, I'll say I felt like on multiple occasions that I saw my high school sweetheart and heard his voice. Um, You know, I know other non-believers who said the same thing, you know, after they dealt with a significant loss, they felt like they were seeing them or heard them or a shadow moved down the hall. And so I believe that that shadow is him. Stuff like dreaming about them even, you know, some people would say, oh, that's a sign that maybe the person's trying to communicate with you from heaven, let you know you're okay and they're okay. So we have these experiences and we have to keep in mind that we are in a highly religious society. Well, if, you live, if you're in the United States anyway, of course, I know some of you are not in the United States, but if you're an American citizen or American resident and you've grown up in, in the United States, this is a very religious society. We like to say, oh, it's not a Christian nation, but it is a very religious society to, you know, to say the least. And grief is often relegated to the realm of, you know, the spiritual, the spiritual people have the market. They have the corner on the market on death and, and what's supposed to happen because it always, we always, you know, a lot of spiritual people are always going to believe in an afterlife or, you know, maybe reincarnation or something, you know, some higher purpose to that person's life and death and so it's not um it's not unreasonable my little quote there from my book says it's not unreasonable that you having encountered that way of thinking much of your life might manifest some internalized concepts 
some of those same internalized concepts during your time of extreme vulnerability. So, you know, when our, you know, when your mood is off and your hormones are off and your brain chemicals are off and everything is just off, my body is off, I'm not eating right or, uh, or drinking right or, you know, whatever, your whole body, everything about you when you're deeply, deeply grieving just gets all out of whack. And so it's not un unrealistic or it should not be um, too uh, distressing to when you think about the fact that this actually kind of makes sense that I might be having these, you know, experiences because I live in this society and I'm extremely vulnerable right now. So the whole point with tip one is really just to kind of normalize some of the things that we go through when we're grieving and so that we're not worried that we're going crazy and oh my god I might slip back into being a Christian because you know yeah so my other um another one of my favorite tips is attend to your psychological and emotional needs obviously I'm a little bit biased I'm a licensed counselor so the main thing I'm going to say to you is see a counselor um, a lot of people obviously, you know, have issues with finding a secular counselor, um, which Eric mentioned, the Secular Therapist Project. So that's the one potential resource. Um, but I also, you know, say, hey, you know, you, I would not immediately write off a therapist just because they are, they have some kind of religious belief. Let's say you walk in their office and they got a cross on their desk or something or a cross necklace or something. I would not immediately write them off because resources are slim. There's, you know, non-believers, we're not a huge percentage of the population. We're not going to be highly represented in, in that field, you know? And so um, to take a risk sometimes you may have to take a risk and consider a, another therapist and what I also encourage people I talk about in the book is you know um you know people wonder should I say something about my non-belief at the beginning or should I wait until we get into it a little bit more I always tell people obviously you got to do what you're comfortable with doing but a lot of times you're going to do some kind of intake paperwork and um a, a lot of mental health intake paperwork inquires about your religious belief if you are sort of honest with your therapist up front about where you do and do not stand, that can kind of, you know, one, you'll, they'll weed themselves out pretty quickly if necessary. But you might also be surprised that the therapist may be okay with respecting that and working with that. But if they assume, if, but if they're Christian, they're going to assume everybody's Christian. They're going to talk, you know, they may bring religious talk into the sessions, maybe. But if you sort of let them know up front, like, hey, I'm not religious. I don't want you bringing the religion into my, in our dis discussions. You, majority of therapists should be able to work with that. Now, obviously, I know that that's not true, that there are plenty of people who've had horrible th experiences with therapists. And I've supervised some therapists where I had to get on them about them bringing their religious beliefs into the therapy sessions so I've definitely I definitely know it happens but what I also have seen before is when those therapists got that feedback they were willing to make changes and so I do always say to non-believers you know have you even given a, a you know religious therapist a chance or have you just automatically assumed that no I'm not going to even try um see a doctor see a psychiatrist 
talk to your doctors and your psychiatrists, talk to everybody, you know, all of the professionals in your life about what's going on with you. Take your meds. If you have, were taking meds before you went through some significant loss, you may be tempted to stop taking them just because you're so depressed, you're not taking care of yourself at all. Or you may find that I've never taken medication before, but now all of a sudden my doctor or my counselor or whatever is, is suggesting that I try an antidepressant or anti-anxiety medication or something like that. And so I, you know, uh, I'm always very open about it and I'm very, um, I highly, highly advocate for medic psychotropic medications because I've seen what it can do in people's lives and I've seen what it you know, has done in my own life. I tell people all the time, I'm completely okay with talking about the fact that I take you know, medications for my mental health because I wouldn't be who I am today if it wasn't for me taking my medications, if it wasn't for me finding the right combination, being patient with the process to find the right combination. And once I found it, stick with it. Um, and I don't care how great I feel. I know I need to keep taking my meds because eventually this great is going to go away if I stop taking it. And so I'm always encouraging people to, you know, take meds or my point there, when I say meds are for clusters of, of symptoms, some, one thing that I've heard people say is, oh, I don't have that diagnosis. You know, oh, that's a schizophrenia med. I don't have schizophrenia. Why are you trying to give me a schizophrenia med? Or, you know, I don't have, uh, I have depression. I don't have anxiety. Why are you trying to give me an anxiety med? And so what I tell, what I talk about in the book and what I tell people that I work with directly is that medications really are for clusters of symptoms. It just so happened that a cluster of a particular symptom we call depression or a cluster of certain symptoms we call you know schizophrenia or bipolar or anxiety or whatever but if you are going through significant grief you may all of a sudden sort of have like an acute occurrence of, of a chunk of, of a cluster of symptoms and so your doctor may look at you and say hey let's try you know a medication for bipolar that that is that's called a bipolar this medication right it's called a bible but your doctor may say hey let's try this because you're having trouble sleeping you know your thoughts are racing you're feeling sad you could use some a mood stabilizer and so you have to think about it more from that perspective that it's not necessarily just what i uh do i have this diagnosis or not but it's also about um um the cluster of symptoms that that medication is good at treating. And my quote from my book there says, you should let yourself feel as many feelings as you want to feel, but recognize that there are actions that you can and should take to make yourself resilient, thereby preventing the emotions from consuming and destroying your life. So again, you know, the grief process is going to be nasty and it's going to be ugly and it's going to be horrible, but there are things that you can do. Um, I remember after my sweetheart died that I wrote a Facebook post and I think it said something to the effect of, um, you know, get sleep, take meds, drink water, repeat. And literally like that was my goal every day was to take my meds, get some sleep and take and drink plenty of water. 
and I was not doing a great job of the drinking water or eating food. I wasn't doing a good job of eating food. And I actually got pretty sick, like, like very sick and had to go to the doctor and take meds. And, um, you know, I was, I was pretty sick. And, um, so, you know, my goal that those very basic things to take care of yourself, you know, this particular tip, chapter four, tip four, is very practical. I mean, it, it almost feels so practical that you might look at it and be like, this is why is, are we even talking about this? This is so simple. But when you are in a bad place, it's almost like you need somebody else to be your brain. And so, you know, the idea with the book in with certain tips is that there may be some things that you just forgot to think about, or there may be some things that you don't care about. And there's some research that, you know, will sort of help you understand why you should care about some of those things. My favorite tip, if you know me, you know that tip six, reconnect with nature is my absolute favorite tip. Um, if you know me, you know that I hike, you know that I camp, you know that I like to do all kinds of things outside. Um, I went waterfall jumping in the Dominican Republic, you know, like I want to get out and be outside and do stuff outside. Um, so the reconnecting with nature is a big deal. Um, the One of the things that I talk about in the book is this poem called After Apple Picking by Robert Frost. Um, I highly recommend that you read it. I'm not going to read it right now, um, but it is a very, um, if you know Robert Frost, you know, his use of um, description and, and appealing to all the senses is very, uh, he's very skilled at that. And after apple picking, it's basically a reflection on death. And the main, the speaker is reflecting on the fact that he's lived a good life and now he's tired and he's ready to he thinks that he might be ready to kind of just go ahead and go to sleep and never wake up and that's kind of how you get the the picture of the apple tree on the cover of the book um so i i include that to say that you know even in our literature you know even in you know those sorts of place uh, you know like i said literature and thinking about creativity and stuff we talk about um death in terms of you know a natural experience and in terms of we we put a lot of um nature imagery into uh conversations about death and, and things like that um, so that's kind of how i end up talk why i end up talking about that poem one of the things that I talk about is something called directed attention fatigue and attention restoration theory. So a directed attention is, and what I say here, what I'm going to read the quote, requires effort, plays a central role in achieving focus, is under voluntary control, at least some of the time, is susceptible to fatigue, and controls distraction through the use of inhibition. So anyway, so your directed attention is what you have control over and it's what you do. Um, it's basically like focus, you know, it's, it's a bigger explanation to say focus, attention, you know, uh, attention to detail, being able to solve problems, those sorts of things when you're, are what you use your directed attention for. Well, Stephen Kaplan and his wife, whose first name I forget, 
um, Mr. and Mrs. Doctor and Doctor uh, Kaplan <laughs> um, posit a theory called um, attention restoration theory. And so their idea is that when directed attention fails, um, or when directed attention is fatigued, then you can engage in attention restoration activities and that will help sort of bring back the, uh, or kind of bounce back and recover from the uh, fatigue. And they talk about doing something called soft fascination and soft fascination is a form of attention that requires no effort and thus allows us to restore our directed attention. Basically, you need to give your brain a break, right? You need to give that side of you that's always in control of things and always managing and organizing your day and your life. You need to give that part of your brain a break. And so the, to do that, you engage in soft fascination. The idea behind soft fascination is specifically that you engage or reconnect with nature in some, in some way. Um, you know, it could be I hike mountains, you know, it could be for you planting a vegetable garden. It could be, you know, somebody likes to go biking. You know, for you, it might be just sitting on the porch doing a rainstorm. You know, the, I, the, the, it's imp what's important about uh, engaging in soft fascination is that it requires no effort, right? And so just uh, like for, I, I give the example, jet skiing. Jet skiing is outside it would not be a restorative experience for me. I've been jet skiing one time. It terrified the shit out of me. I don't think I want to do jet skiing again. It would not be the thing to help me relax for the day. You know, if you've never been camping, it might not be a good idea for you to decide, I'm, I got to learn how to pitch a tent, build a fire, you know, not be scared of the night sounds. Like that's probably not the thing for you to do for, a, for soft fascination so the idea behind soft fascination is that it's not only something that you enjoy but it's something that you can do at ease without anxiety and trying to you know read the instructions on putting the tent together and stuff like that um and i talk in the book also about some research on heart surgery patients and um there was a study where uh, patients who had rooms with windows where they could see like trees and clouds and you know they could see nature versus a window that just looks at the side of another building or having no window at all right the people who had rooms where they could see nat natural settings actually used less um, pain medication and they recovered faster they were able to discharge from the hospital faster than patients who had regular window you know a window that just like I said face the building or no window at all um I not you know there's several studies that go with that there's also another study where they they didn't do windows they actually just put pictures of nature in the in the patient rooms and the rooms that had photos of you know trees and flowers and things like that same thing they had better outcomes than the people whose rooms did not have those uh, that decoration in it so there's a there's a lot of research and you know we could go on and on forever about you know exercising and what that does and you know we could talk for days about the ways that nature is beneficial to you but the point is find some way to reconnect with nature in some level and sort of make that a normal a regular part of your activity um if again like i said you know a hike 
And um, after after my high school sweetheart's death, um, I did not hike for quite a while. Um, I, I went to Colorado with Daryl and we hiked. And I, after that, I went quite a while without hiking again. And I um, remember sort of saying to myself, this is, well, actually this was one of those experiences where I felt, I thought I was having some kind of like, you know, he was talking to me or something like that you know he was telling me you got to get back out there and hike Candace you know this is not you this is you know being in nature is good for you you know hike what hiking does for you you got to get back out there you can't just keep laying around and not hiking and so I thought you know I'm not honoring my you know he used to call me hiker girl and so I'm not honoring him by just laying around the house and not hiking I need to get out there and do the thing that I enjoy doing um, and so for me, it's hiking. For you, it's going to maybe something else. So tip 10 is the one where, like I said, this is more for people who are, are not dealt with a lot of or are not currently dealing with any kind of grieving situation, but they want to sort support other people or someone else who is. The thing about this chapter, what I really like about this chapter is it's super... Um, it's super practical. I mean, it's just like, you know, very concrete ideas and suggestions of thing of things that you can do for that for that person that you're trying to support. Um, you know, being patient with them, sending notes of encouragement and condolences, cooking meals. Um, I, and I talk, I, you know, I sort of try to not, it's not just like a list of things. I try to sort of discuss how is this helpful? Why is this helpful? And one of the things that's always my favorite part of this particular chapter is I talk about, um, I give an example of how somebody bought me a quart, just a little small quart container of soup, of homemade soup. Now, remember, I wasn't eating, right? I wasn't eating so much that I got sick. And um, I, I ate a little bit out of her soup and then it sat in the refrigerator until it molded and I just threw the whole container away. So one of the things that I talk about is, you know, cooking small portions. Don't, you know, don't feel like you got to cook a whole casserole. And then also like using disposable dishes, because now not only did you bring me some food and I'm probably not going to eat, I also have to clean a dish, you know, that you're now leaving at my house. And that's just adding more on top of, you know, which is why I like with my, with that quart of stuff that my friend gave me, I didn't even try to keep the container. It would have been a perfectly good container to keep, but I was like, I'm not washing another dish. And I just threw the whole thing in the trash. Um, doing things like helping the person clean up their house, you know, organize their house, babysitting, um, you know, everything from toddlers to high school students, middle schoolers and high schoolers, there's some active kids. They have some busy lives nowadays. And so, you know, something like chauffeuring their child around for the day so that they can, you know, engage in a restorative activity, for example, or just rest. Um, you know, so that particular tip, tip 10 is very practical. And I also talk about things like touch, sex life, and ways that you can support people um, during you know, our time of social distancing right now. And in the final um, pages of the book, this is the last page of the book right here. You can make it. This is your new normal. It will get better. You will make it through this. You will survive. You must survive because this is your new normal. And um, that was how I left the book right there. And uh, 
that's my presentation. Candace, thank you very much. <laughs> you know, this- um, Where do we start? This, that was amazing. <laughs> I know. This, I, uh, I don't, whatever you said um, midway through, it kind of like brought some tears to my eyes, like just remembering the time that I was struggling back, um, losing, uh, I, I don't have any children and I haven't lost too many like beloved ones, but the ones that I have lost were pets and um, it just was heartbreaking. And uh, just thinking back on that and remembering back on that and just how lost I felt when it hit me, <laughs> I didn't grieve immediately. It took three months to, uh, for it to hit me. You know, I'm glad that you brought that up, actually, about the fact that one of your major griefs that you've experienced was the loss of a pet. Um, I do say right at the beginning of the book that I focus on the loss of, of people, but, you know, the loss of animals, the loss of opportunities, the loss of a job, a breakup, those sorts of things can cause the same level of grief as losing a person you know it can be just as devastating and so um i do even though the book uses language about you know person person people people um you know you can still apply some of those same principles and and um suggestions to any sort of a loss because your brain is is not the your body and your brain and the way that you are processing the loss is not going to say, oh, well, this is an animal, so I don't have to grieve as hard. Your body and your brain are still going to grieve the same. Yeah, I love that. And I recently lost a, a family member, like not, they didn't pass away, but it just became two different people after having been, uh, having had a close connection for the majority of my life. And um, not being able to, you know, just realizing this is just too toxic and I have to step away. And uh, there's, there was a lot of grief that I've gone through and probably still will go through out of that too. And reading, looking through those tips, I can see why I'm doing certain behavior, like wanting to go on hikes and uh, like feeling a need and not like wanting, but really feeling this need to just get away do something that I can't, I, I don't have to really think about how to do. And just, I, I really, really appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> I'm getting a little teary and choked up. So well, look, I made it. Hey, I am just so surprised that I made it without crying. I, I came a little <laughs> close, but I'm, I, I made it. I didn't break down in the tears. <laughs> you know, even uh, that Candace, the, the fact that, um, it's okay to break down and it's okay for us to feel grief. Um, yes. I, I wanted to ask your thoughts and your input. As somebody who's come out of Christianity, um, many of us were actually discouraged from grieving properly. We had scriptures thrown our way saying, that, you know, we do not grieve like those in the world do because we have hope. They, they don't have hope. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I'm not sure if I speak for others, but I never really learned how to grieve until I started to step away from my faith. And that's not healthy for us as, as humans, but I never properly grieved because if I showed too much emotion at the loss of somebody, that meant that I didn't have enough faith in God and his promises for the afterlife. Mm -hmm. how, how, do you, how do you help us to learn to be okay with feeling grief? That's really interesting. You mentioned that because I was just doing an interview last night and that came up 
or it wasn't an interview, it was a show. And that came up too, you know, and I made the point that I had a really significant loss. My my aunt, who is like a second mother to me, um, she passed away my, high, my senior year of high school. And I remember, you know, the, the grief was just really, just, I mean, it was just horrible. It was really just horrible. But mm-hmm. like you said, I felt like I had to hide it. I couldn't let people know that I was crying at night. You know, I didn't want to tell anybody. The pastor of the church was like, I know it's sad. I'm sad too. But, and then like you said, you know, they throw some scriptures at you about why, you know, you don't need yeah. to grieve because this person's in a better place. Um, I think, you know, for us as non-believers, we don't have that we don't have the luxury of of believing that our loved one is in an afterlife you know we don't have that luxury so it may be even you know i guess it depends on which one is is the worst to you right would it be worse to have to push it down and hide it and and be like oh they're in a better place or is it worse to say they're never coming back you know I'm never going to see them again I'm never going to come across them again so we do have to grieve in a different type of way and deal with it in an existential way different than people who believe in afterlives or reincarnation and things like that um I think that the most important thing is to you know just hold on to the like the well I want I talk about doing something to honor the person for example that tip about doing something I didn't I didn't list that as one of my favorites which I should because it actually is one of my favorite tips about doing things in honor of that loved one you know like I said for me I wrote a book for you it might be um you know just going out to dinner to their favorite restaurant you know, we talk about this acceptance stage being about incorporating that person back into your life in a new and a different way. Um, I think that that is that is sort of key for us as non-believers, where we're if we're learning how to grieve for the first time, or we're learning how to go through these processes for the first time, because we were never allowed to. You know, the keys are one just let yourself feel it but then two you know engage in some things to help you sort of channel that energy as well but you you do I mean you gotta kind of gotta in order to really feel like you resolved it well you kind of want to go through it and just deal with the pain I think that the thing for me was uh, I didn't expect to feel how I felt like I didn't I wasn't prepared um I had been taught to uh, force yourself to be joyful, sort of like what uh, Sasha was saying. Be happy that they're gone, that they're in a better place, and um, leaving that, not having that anymore. Um, uh, I uh, I didn't expect it, and uh, didn't know. I thought something was wrong with me, and um, uh, so yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I'm really glad that uh, there's there's now this resource um, that I could pick up and. Uh, read because of it and I, I also really really like what you're talking about doing something in honor of of the the people that we've lost because in fact my wife and I were talking about that today um, we were thinking of our, our past pets that we've lost as, as silly as it may sound to some folks but um, not they were silly really important to us mm-hmm. okay they're really important to us and we were thinking of um maybe writing like a children's book of some of the lessons that they taught us, uh, even, you know, even if it's just for us and never gets published or anything, but it'd be kind of cool to do that in, 
in their honor and, and something we would really enjoy. Absolutely. I think that would be a fabulous, you know, thing to have a little resource for, you know, children and, and us adults, you know. That's yeah. beautiful. You know, Eric, um, you mentioned something with a lot of the work that you do with genealogies as well, where you're looking at the history of, of people who have since passed. Um, you said people remain alive as long as they're still being spoken about or as long as they're still being um, talked about in the community. Words to that effect. If you Can you share that with us and how that can actually help us with processing grief too? <laughs> Um, I don't know if it's helped me process grief. It's kind of motivated me to do what I do more than anything. But the quote was, um, uh, you die twice, uh, the first time when you draw your last breath, and the second time when someone says your name for the last time. And uh, that has uh, really pushed me on to uh, do genealogy work and to get these people's stories and their names um, back into uh, people's minds and mouths uh, and, you know, I, I wrote a book with about my own family, and I'm hoping that that work that I do will not only keep them alive, but it'll also keep me alive longer. But this is, I think, a little bit off topic from, <laughs> from uh, Candace's uh, presentation. I didn't want to bring it up about me. No, I appreciate you sharing. Um, but Candace, we had some fantastic questions come through okay. from, from people. Um, can we share some of those with you and sure. see if you can? Um, yeah. One, one really great question is, um, and you have covered this to some extent already with, with your presentation, but what sort of things can we say to folks who say that they will pray for us in our time of grief? Mm. Now, they may not know we're not believers or that's their way. What do you suggest? So I do discuss that um, more di directly in the tip about being patient with your spiritual loved ones. Um, so the work that we have to do as the, the individual, you know, non-believer, I personally, when I was in the depths of my grief, I did not have the energy to argue with anybody or to fuss with anybody or anything or to be like, I'm not a Christian. Don't pray for me. You know, I didn't have the energy for that. I would just, this was my personal approach, which was, as long as they're not trying to proselytize or preach to me or whatever, if it's just a simple, oh, I'm sorry for your loss, I'll pray for you. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna get into an argument or a debate over that. Because again, like I said earlier, we're in America, again, if you're in America or if you're in a country that's a very religious country, you know, where people say things like that and they don't even have to know you, you know, you know I, I, it should not you shouldn't be surprised you shouldn't be shocked that th that you're gonna get that you're gonna get it mm -hmm. left and right um and decide do you want to expend the energy on that my bet is that you don't you know like i said if it's something as simple as i'll pray for you now if you try to sit me i do say in the book too if the person is like trying to actually preach to you or proselytize to you or you know trying to convince you of, of believing the way that they believe, then yeah, I think that you absolutely should put your foot down and say, look, uh, you know, this is not helping my grieving process right now. 
you know, if you are out and you want to say out, you know, out front, you know, I'm an atheist, I don't believe that stuff, then fine. If maybe you don't want to go there, something as simple as, you know, this is not really helpful to me right now. Can we not have this conversation? You know, and that might be, or not, can we not, but we're not going to have this conversation. It's not helpful to me. Um, and, and just move on. That's a good point. Yeah, you're, you're right. I hear what you're saying. So some people, the only thing that they think they can say is thoughts and prayers, or they feel like they're, they're expending some sort of sense of uh, support to you by saying that. So I guess you've got to pick your audience or pick the, the person's motivation when they say those comments. Yeah, I mean, I had, you know, all of my friends and family know I'm an atheist, you know, but I had so many, I'll pray for you, I'll pray for you. And even a couple times, you know, they would say, I know you don't believe this, Candace, but I do, and I'm going <laughs> to pray for you. And you know what I say to them? That's fine. I appreciate your, uh, you know, I appreciate the thought that you, what you're trying to do. I don't have time to argue with you. I'm not going to argue with you. You know, I know what you're trying to say, especially, you know, with certain friends and family that I know really got my, you know, my best interests at heart. Oh, I didn't have time for arguing. <laughs> I really like how you put that. Um, what you're saying isn't helping me grieve right now because I haven't had the words in the past and I can envision the future if someone were to people have said that to me in the past and what i've noticed me doing is going to anger i mm. want to fly off the handle because mm -hmm. that will make me feel better if i put them down or something like that and so um but having these phrases to say to sort of curtail that and fall back on is feels not only healthier but also uh won't maybe um delay or or uh allow me to process my grief mm -hmm. quicker and better perhaps mm -hmm. yes yeah, uh, empowering yeah oh yeah yeah i love that um we have i have to acknowledge those in the chat who are sending lots of questions our apologies if we haven't got to everything <laughs> or if we've missed your um question please um nothing personal we're just trying to keep up with some of them mm -hmm. that have been sent directly to us as well um but yeah, i do have one good. here sorry eric go ahead yeah, one really great question for you. Um, what if you're grieving and you have doubts of stepping away from Christianity? So if somebody's just in that early stage of stepping away from Christianity or their belief structure, um, any suggestions you can share there? Mm -hmm. So um, if we take grief out of it for a second, you know, I'm, if I'm a newly... Uh, a new non-believer or I'm still questioning I'm still sort of struggling sort of struggling um what I've said in the past in in my writing and in my talks and stuff is that that what is going to help you solidify your um your confidence in your non-belief is knowledge it's re you know it's knowing I tell people all the time you know familiarize yourself have a basic working knowledge of things like evolution and the concept of theories not not maybe theories but body of knowledge theories and like why you know get yourself some basic science literacy or study some history do some you know comparative religion studies you know just do google is your friend you know it's easy to do this stuff from home right now at least to get a basic 
of knowledge. So if you're in a place where you already kind of like, oh, I don't know what I think or what I feel, but you feel like you probably should be going in the direction of non-believing, then do some research and do some studying to really so that so that your your non-belief isn't just an emotional thing it is a it's an intellectual decision you know it's an intellectual process and then when emotions come up such as grief you know because again you know I felt I, I, I had all those same feelings I mean I had times where I was mad at God but I'm mad at this concept that there's a God that is in control of this situation and you let this happen to my love and so you know I went through all I was all over the place I was all over the place but you know the if when you have a firmer foundation as to why you are a non-believer then even something like oh my gosh he's dead I wish he was in heaven it's just like you know what that's just a natural function of my grief and that's okay for me to think that and feel that way but I'm not gonna you know I, I just know that that's going to happen, but my, it doesn't shake my non-belief. I think that um, uh, it's so attractive just mentally or maybe emotionally to think that there is someone or something that, uh, or there's some reason why this person was taken away from us. And I could see it being really attractive to like want to yell at this imaginary concept of a God and just shake my fists and curse curse their name mm-hmm. um but because it, it, it's at times it's so much harder to uh realize that there may not be a reason um and this is just dumb luck uh, mm. and it happened to someone that i really loved and cared about and that's that that can sometimes feel me with the uh, fill me with a sense of loneliness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is there also um, and another question that came through that um, ties in with that? Um, so, as a non-believer, do you actually is it actually easier to not fear death as a non-believer now? Like, how uh, is it is it a relief to throw off the idea of an afterlife mm-hmm. as a non-believer? Um, I think that's a unique experience for everybody. You know, I think everybody's going to have their own experience with that. Um, I know for me personally, I am less fearful of death because there's no hell. Not Mm -hmm. because, you know, I'm not mourning the loss of heaven. I'm celebrating the loss of this concept of hell, you know? And so for me, Mm -hmm. I, I did I changed in that way that I you know I'm not afraid of death because I remember I used to be terrified of the thought of one of my loved ones dying and going to hell that's not saved you know that was just a horrifying uh, you know thought I mean I would have nightmares about from childhood all the way up to through my adulthood I would have nightmares about family members dying and going to hell and so releasing that concept has been um, what has been the most uh, refreshing part of being, you know, when dealing with grief and non-belief and stuff like that. Um, so I think everybody's experience is really going to be different in that. I think it's hard to say, you know, wh- which aspect of death and afterlife and non-afterlife, you know, what which aspect are you going to focus on? And then that's going to impact how you feel and what, you know, what it's going to do for you. But um, 
I, I, I do, you know, I, I like the idea of all of the various unique ways that we've come up with, you know, burying people or doing different things with their ashes and their remains. Like, I think that they, this, that second stage can be a pretty beautiful thing as well when you're trying to figure out some kind of way to memorialize that person. Um, so I think we've come up with some really unique and beautiful things. You know, people want to be planted and be a tree or turned into a diamond or you know you could do some really cool things now so I saw this meme I don't know if you're a Facebook friend of mine you may have seen it but the meme said um when you die get yourself get cremated and put into an hourglass and then you can always be part of family game night <laughs> that's brilliant <laughs> oh, that's great <laughs> the sand's not white what is uh... <laughs> Who who's in there? It's kind of a gray ashy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Um, we have another uh, good question here too. Um, if you're uh, kind of a, an atheist or a non-believer, but you aren't really out yet, um, and you're attending a religious funeral, uh, and that's something that I've experienced several times. How? What are some tips that uh, um, that that you might have for folks? Because when I was hearing these people leading these services, it felt like there was an insurance salesman, a sleazy, slimy insurance salesman up there trying to pull me into this uh, uh, their, their belief system so that I could um, be assured of, of everlasting life. Mm. But um, and it, I was angry. I was really angry. And uh, what oh, kind yeah. of advice would you have? Oh, I think that's a wonderful question because, I, again, like I said, you know, going to black funerals, you can guarantee, you know, that it's going to be, uh, there's going to be lots of talk that for us as a non-believer is probably going to be infuriating, such as, you know, oh, God took this person out of here on purpose, like God got a new angel or, you know, you know, like with my high school sweetheart, he was not a very religious person at all. He believed in God, but I don't think that he believed in, well, I know, I mean, he said he didn't believe in the white Jesus, you know, and so, um, you know, being at the funeral and hearing his family and the, the people preaching and talking about how he was such a great Christian and a wonderful man of God. And it's like, y'all know y'all just making up stuff. Like y'all just saying the stuff that sounds nice. He was not a great Christian. Like he went to church because his mama told him to go to, you know, like when she told him to go to church, that's the only time yeah. he went to church. And he definitely, I can guarantee you as a person who was not his wife, he was not living according to all the Christian expectations. But anyway, so, <laughs> so he, uh, so what was the original question? What was I saying? Uh, oh, for oh, for going to funerals, right. Advice. So um, I've been to plenty of funerals where, you know, like I said, I was going through my own anger. I'm going to tell you the stuff that has helped me. For one, take something to eat that you ain't supposed to eat in the church. You know, have you some candy, some chewing gum, oh. something to be able to focus on other than all the words. Um, taking somebody who I could laugh and make jokes with about church and all that stuff at the back. And believe it or not, the person who I always have the most fun with at church is my mama, because my mama will sit in the back and cut, even though she's a Christian, she will sit in the back and indulge my silliness and cutting up. Um, you know, I, I scribble 
on paper, you know, draw the usual stuff that little kids do to keep themselves occupied during church. Do those things, <laughs> you know, scribble on the back of the flyer, whatever, do whatever you got to do to sort of be able to come in and out. Because some, there are aspects of funerals that I, that are very comforting, right? The music can be comforting, you know, other people being able to get up and, and speak words from, you know, to like reflect on their experiences with or relationship with that person. I mean, there are some beautiful aspects of funerals that can really help us um, grieve as well. Um, and then there's aspects of funerals that's just, you know, full of crap and you don't want to deal with it. And those are your times to just sort of check out for a second. Or like I said, if you got somebody, just make some jokes. I'll sit That's in the back. Of you don't want to go to church with me because somebody's going to get struck by lightning one day because I cut a whole fool at the back of the church no. when I have to end up in church. I do want to go to church. That's exactly <laughs> what I want to do. <laughs> that would be fantastic. I could. Uh, I, really, I really like that advice. Um, I, I actually now remember I had a very close friend passed away suddenly and this was maybe two, three, three years ago now. And uh they were very religious. She was so plugged into the religious community. And um, we had an opportunity in the chapel to tell stories. And all of the stories I were hearing were related to um, her work for her God and the things that she did uh, in church. And um, what really felt good for me is kind of standing up and sharing a story that had nothing to do with that, just kind of like how I knew her and what I really, really appreciated about her. And I know that she didn't hear that or, you know, had no, no idea of it, but it, it helped me just kind it was of helpful to you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I wasn't getting drawn into it. I just was like, this is who she was to me and everyone else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But this is who she was to me. And it felt pretty good. That's yeah. powerful, Eric. It's funny you say that, that, and I think that's beautiful that you had the opportunity. We've had other friends, the same where they've actually gone to a funeral but the funeral's been hijacked by the religious institution where yeah. it was more of a sales pitch for the church rather than a, a celebration of the person's life yeah, so yeah. They, they spoke about having their own funeral service after so that the church didn't get to co-opt or own that that funeral um for that person they had their own service where they got to do exactly what you said mm. speak about celebrate share stories didn't matter what the church did that was up to them, but they had their own service after. Um, so beautiful that's, you said that's that. That's great. Candice, we have uh, two more questions. Um, Sasha, you want to take uh, the last one and we'll take this one? Yeah, um, really great question about how we process grief. Are there any physical benefits of crying and how do we do that? Yes. So again, I can't tell you, I couldn't get everything on the slide on the PowerPoint, but another one of my favorite um, topics or things that I talk about in the book is the, are the benefits of crying. And there's just some really amazing research that I came across. I mean, that is just really surprising things. Um, and one of the, like, just to sort of rattle off at the top of my head, some of the things that I remember, for example, they talk about how um, when we're grieving, our when we're crying, our bodies produce endogenous opioids, right? So just naturally occurring opioids in your body. Um, and that helps, I mean, obviously that's going to help you, you know, feel, you know, any kind of physical pain that you might be feeling, but they also believe that it helps with psycholo managing psychological pain as well. 
Um, and one of the things that, you know, if you, you may have heard or seen some research, it kind of gets more and more um, uh, play nowadays is that the areas of the brain that feel physical pain and the areas of the brain that feel like social isolation or um, disconnect from people, that sort of thing, they're really close to each other in the brain, beside the brain. And so um, there's some belief that, that that's why, for example, you can have, you know, you're a broken heart. If you ever heard somebody say, you know, like they had a broken heart, but like they talk about feeling real pain in their body, you know, real pain in their stomach, real pain all over the place. So, the, so they believe crime produces these endogenous opioids out of the body um, that, that or it does that the body does produce the endogenous opioids and they believe that it can help with the psychological pain um something one of the other ones uh oh crying your body produces produces oxytocin and if you've heard of oxytocin you know that's the love hormone that's the connection hormone so if you're that's partly why if you think about like i said funerals can be such a cathartic experience because you got all these people in here crying and all these people producing oxytocin and now all of a sudden we all feel uh, a common we're going through a common experience together um and so uh, i also talk in the book about if it's helpful for you to have somebody to be with you while you're crying, you know, that you're going to be producing that oxytocin that's going to help that connection feel a little bit stronger there. And, you know, sometimes having a person with you can help, help you feel like, okay, I'm not, somebody is here to watch me in case I go crazy, you know, so even though you're not going to go crazy. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the other stuff about crying. Um, it, it, activates the parasympathetic uh, nervous system and there's you know research about the ways that that leads to improved relaxation for example um i just go i got there's so many it was like a whole bullet point and a bunch of discussion in the book about how that uh crying actually can be beneficial um on a physiological level and not just psychologically you know i uh uh, I'll be honest, I was trying to hide crying, but I was crying a little bit in this discussion. And I can tell you, like, I'm feeling a little warmer. Mm. I'm feeling a little happier. Um, and uh, I'm actually really glad for this question because it gave me a little time to kind of reflect, like, well, how do I feel? And, and mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the things that you were, I can't tell you if, oh, yeah, oxyco oxycotton, <laughs> oxytocin <laughs> is coursing through my brain. Or, <laughs> But uh, I do, I do feel happier and um, a little bit relieved, and, mm -hmm. and oddly enough, kind of warmer too. It's, it's interesting. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm, I'm actually. Oh, go ahead, Sasha. No, giving yourself permission to feel that grief is probably one of the biggest things that we all right. have learned. Yeah. I, I know. Yeah, we touched on that. Your ten points that you put in that one of those initial slides were absolutely beautiful. In that it really came across that you were showing true kindness to yourself rather than guilt or self-condemnation or trying to overanalyze things that all of those 10 points were, um, were, were true kindness to yourself, true love mm -hmm. to yourself to process things. Um, thank you for sharing those. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, we got Is there one more gonna, question. Uh, actually two more ones real quick. Will okay. your book come out as an audiobook? <laughs> I hope so. Uh, I and I look like that because I I want to read it, 
but I don't, I need a resource. Anybody got a studio that I can come to and record one weekend? You do the sound engineering and do all this. Let me know. I will fly to any state. But with my first book, my ex-husband was a studio, was a musician and a studio engineer. And we had a whole home studio. And so obviously it was easy for me to just get him to do it. But now I don't have nobody. So <laughs> that's no my current that. hurdle is to find the is to be able to get access to a studio and an engineer to do it. And you mentioned there may be a delay on the release of the printed book as well, ETA on that or well again like i said amazon is saying october 21st um i don't recall seeing a last time i checked on barnes and nobles i don't recall them showing a release date but that's what amazon is saying right now is the 21st okay now this final question um this was asked uh, is there a way to offset grief uh, maybe is it healthy to offset it or and if it is are there any practices that one can uh, do to reduce or eliminate um, these grief feelings? Mm -hmm. I don't think that there's a way to offset grief. I think that grief is horrible, it's ugly, it's nasty, and you just have to go through it. It's not gonna go away. You can hide it, you can shove it down, you can try to ignore it, you can you know, do all kinds of other things if you want to, but one day, someday, might not be the day, might not be tomorrow, might be 5, 10, 12 years from now. But that grief, the, any unresolved grief is going to come back out and it's going to impact you. And, and hiding and suppressing all those feelings and things, that's going to have a negative impact on your body, physically, as well as your mental and emotional health. So I don't think that there's any way to sort of short, you know, run in route around the grief. You just really, I mean, because when you when it's when it's really deep and really a horrible experience it's all encompassing you know it's like being shrouded in a you know fog of darkness yeah i hate this you know, sound all over the top but that's what it is like and there's no way for me to get around this i'm in the middle of this big huge cloud of grief i just have to go i can either stay here and and try to ignore it and pretend that it's not there and try to live my life inside of that cloud or I can try to get out of this cloud and, and go through it. Um, so uh, again, you know, the point of the book is that there are things that you can do to help the process along and to kind of alleviate, try to alleviate some of that pain, but it's not going to change the fact that you got to go through it. Candice, thank you so, so much for taking the time out of your day to, and evening to come here and talk with us because I'm looking at the chat and this has been so beneficial for a lot of people, both here and over on um, Discord too, uh, Atheist Community Discord. And um, I knew this would be rough for me, but uh, it came out on the other side feeling yes. a lot better and uh, even more prepared for the next time something mm -hmm. was going to happen. Mm -hmm. So, and you know, and I'll sort of just get, have a moment of transparency with everybody. Um, you know, I know that's what we like to do on this show. You know, being that I'm now doing these talks and I'm in the midst of reliefs in the book and I'm on people are interviewing me, 
I am having like a resurgence of grief myself. Um, and so, I mean, I'm, I'm having some pretty significant, um, you know, reactions and crying spells and, you know, just try like run away from the group and run to the bathroom because I'm going to break into tears. So I'm having like a pretty intense resurgence of grief myself. Um, and so it's just, I mean, it's just rough. It just is rough and it, and it, and it, cycles and it comes and it goes and you'll have a good day today and then all of a sudden it's like being knocked over by a wave you know and mm. it just comes out of nowhere but well thank you for the process yeah yeah thank you that in Are the you... process of helping everyone else you you're vulnerable too thank you for putting yourself out there to assist all of us mm. Are you the type of person to take your own advice? <laughs> when I remember, I will. And I actually did say that the other day while I was sitting there crying. And I was like, you're going to take your own advice, Candace, and you're just going to cry for a few minutes. Like I yeah. literally said outside, out loud to myself, you're going to take your own advice, Candace, because I was trying to like get myself back together. I don't want to cry. And I was just like, you know what? No, I'm just going to say, and I just sat on my bathroom floor and I just cried. I just, I don't know how long I was there, but I, I was like, that's my advice is to let the tears out. I'm going to let the tears out. And you just hearing you say that and be vulnerable with us um, to me is inspiring because I see, you know, now that I've heard this, looking back on this whole talk, I see, I can see how courageous it is to come on and do these talks and uh, be vulnerable time and time again and uh, so that's inspiring uh, to me as, as well so. recovering from religion is a non-profit organization whose mission it is to provide hope healing and support to those struggling with issues of doubt and non-belief hope healing and support is waiting for you on our website recoveringfromreligion.org there you can speak or chat with a trained agent who will work with you through your struggles and doubts or to help find resources that may work for you. You can also find local Recovering from Religion support groups in your area for the long-term recovery work. Resources specifically curated for those struggling with doubts, disbelief, and trauma can also be found on the RFR website. To connect with a secular therapist in your area, go to seculartherapy.org and create an account. If you'd like to support the work that RFR does, you can donate or sign up as a volunteer on the Recovering From Religion website. It's also a big help subscribing to the RFR YouTube channel, our blog, or following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Questions, comments, and suggestions can be emailed to us at rfrx at recoveringfromreligion.org. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you'll be with us next time on the Recovering From Religion podcast. You know what it's like to journey out of a once-cherished belief. Maybe you were devoutly religious, escaped a cult, or perhaps you simply navigated out of some very difficult days. And now you'd like to help someone else do the same. Recovering from Religion is a wonderful support organization for people who feel confused, troubled, and alone as they come to grips with the possibility that they no longer hold a religious belief or that they risk losing everything if they're honest with themselves and others about their journeys. These people need our help, and Recovering From Religion needs yours. RFR is seeking volunteers. Perhaps you're formerly religious, or you have a specific skill set like speaking a foreign language. Maybe you're just a good listening ear. 
The RFR Volunteer Training Program will help you translate those abilities into critical assistance, encouragement, and support for the men, women, and youth who contact RFR every day from all over the world. You can relate. You can understand. And you can make their journeys easier. Join the team at Recovering From Religion and remind someone else that they are not alone and someone is here to help. To find out more, click the Volunteer tab at recoveringfromreligion.org.